let's, uh, let's dive in here. Um, this summer, we've been walking verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the most in-depth and longest sermon that Jesus preaches or that's recorded. Uh, and so this morning, we've come to his closing remarks. So he's finishing the sermon. He's wrapping it up. We come to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, and we're going to walk through verse 27. And the way that he closes is actually pretty confrontational. As I mentioned before, uh, we've been walking through this book, Essential Christianity, during our summer night series. And uh, if you guys were reading through the book, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we walked through the chapter where J.D. sits on a plane next to a woman and he starts sharing Christ with her. And he's talking to her about Jesus through the whole flight. And uh, when they begin their descent, like, you know, the pilot comes on, they begin their descent, the seatbelt light comes on, all the things. Uh, and he decides that it's time to close the deal, Right. They begin their descent, and so he asks if she would like to receive Jesus as her Savior. So it's time for her to make a decision. What would she do with Jesus? So for the past three months, we've been walking through this sermon and taking in the words of Jesus. And now we've come to the point where Jesus starts to land the plane, so to speak. And so, like, you know, it's the tray tables up time. It's the, we're beginning our descent. Like it or not, we have a destination and we've come to the point where we're going to be confronted with a decision. All that Jesus presented us with, he now confronts us with in this passage. He says Jesus closes his sermon with actually four different illustrations that confront us with a decision. Four different opportunities to say yes to Jesus in every area of our lives. And so we, this is, if you'll notice this about Jesus, it's, an, it's a fascinating principle throughout the scriptures that really sets true Christianity apart, and that's that love does not insist on its own way. It's, it's an interesting dynamic that love does not insist on its own way. And Jesus, who could very well insist on his own way, doesn't do it. He doesn't force it. He offers it. He provides the option, and he makes it really clear, and he makes it clear that it's a confrontation with what we would naturally lean into. And so he uses these illustrations to clarify even what's at stake, but he doesn't demand it. And so he shows us that there are really only two options. We have two options, but he confronts us with these two options. In each illustration, we're presented with two gates, Two types of prophets, two types of disciples, and two types of foundations. So one gate leads to life, the other leads to destruction. One kind of prophet points to life, the other kind points to destruction. One kind of uh, disciple is headed for life, and the other kind is headed for destruction. And then one kind of foundation is the foundation of life, and the other is the foundation for destruction. And so each illustration comes with the same warning. Life is found by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And all else leads to destruction. So the confrontation is simple, but not easy. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Now, some of you may think, okay, you might be in here and you're like, yeah, I, 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 I dealt with this decision when I was 13. 
right? Maybe, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Maybe you've been a Christian for decades. And so you might think, maybe the sermon isn't for me. This is for the unbelievers. And this is just like a platform for evangelism. And, you know, I'm just going to tune out and just think about the person next to me or the person that might be in this room. And then, you know, it's not really for me. It's for like the unbelievers or the non-Christians in here. But I want you to understand that this sermon that Jesus preaches, the Sermon on the Mount, isn't preached to the ungodly nations. It's preached to the covenant people of Israel. He's talking to religious people. Like the original audience for this sermon isn't the atheist or the unbeliever. It's not the like crazy partied crowd. <laughs> like it's the religious person that had enough sense of duty or at least curiosity to follow Jesus into the wilderness and up a mountain. They don't really know who he is yet. Some of them do. Some of them are figuring it out. He's got a whole crowd. He's got disciples. He's got crowds. He's got Pharisees. He's got a whole worldview in front of him that's been inundated by a society that thinks they've got it together. So no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, the question that we're all, every one of us, the question that we're all confronted with from this passage this morning is what will you do with Jesus? Because this is the truth. It's not simply the question that we ask in order to become a Christian. It's the question we keep asking because that's how we mature as a Christian. Not what did you do with Jesus when you were 13? What will you do with Jesus today? What will you do with Jesus when you find yourself in an argument with your spouse later on this afternoon? What will you do with Jesus? There's even an echo in here in, in Christ's closing uh, of the way Moses closed a sermon to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30 back in the Old Testament. It's a clear connection that he's making. If you go back and look at the sermon that Moses preaches in Deuteronomy 30 and you compare it to the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, oh, Jesus is doing something here. He's connecting some dots. And so here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he says, this is how he closed. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore, choose life. So turn with me to Matthew 7, and we're going to walk through verse 13 through 27. And as a framework for the rest of our time, we're going to look at these four illustrations that confront us with our ultimate need for Jesus in every area of our life. And so the first, is, the first illustration is the gate. The second is the fruit. The third is the verdict. And then the fourth is the rock. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. The way of Christ is the way of reliance on the Spirit, not the flesh. Life and death have been set before you. Choose life. Say, choose life. All right. Seatbelt signs on? Let's land this thing. All right. We'll start with the gate. Matthew 7, verse 13. It says this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, there's a general application 
and a specific application here. So for example, this principle of the narrow and wide gate could be applied to most situations, and it wouldn't be wrong because the principle here is true, okay? So you see this a lot, that this principle is applied in its general application, right? Like popular opinion does not necessitate what is right, okay? If you have not figured that out yet, Welcome to church. Like, popular opinion does not necessitate what is right and true. And actually, following the crowd is often going to get you in trouble, and at the very least, it'll often get you lost. Like, how many of you know that just because you're with the crowd doesn't mean that you're not lost? Right? Groupthink. Like, part of walking with Jesus and learning wisdom and sensitivity to his spirit is recognizing, okay, I'm not just going to follow the world and the crowd around me. I'm going to discern and pray through things and follow what he has for me, right? We don't live as like skeptic, fearful people, but we are called to discern and look to him and his word, amen? And so, this principle, again, it can be applied to all kinds of scenario, which is sort of general wisdom. But when we apply it generally, it's also easy to overlook the specific point here that Jesus is making. Like the point that he is really driving home here is that he is the gate that leads to life. It's not just a general application about following the crowd. Jesus is saying, I am the gate that leads to life. So, so I want you to think about the image that Jesus uses here. I, I spent a lot of time in pretty wild areas in my late teens and early 20s. And when I say wild, I don't just mean like, like he's wild. I mean like the wilderness, right? <laughs> like <laughs> this was before GPS and navigational systems. And uh, more than once I found myself in pretty thick forest uh, wondering if I was on the right path that was going to take me home before the darkness set in and nighttime hit. Because uh, you don't really want to be caught out in the middle of nowhere and not know where you are with no way out in the dark, right? And so I would find myself uh, in deep woods, and I'd walk into deep woods, and I'd spend sometimes the entire day hunting or whatever it was. And um, after a full day in the cold, often is when I would do it in fall or winter, and uh, you get pretty tired and you get really hungry. If you've ever been really cold and not eaten all day, it's like a whole other level of hangry, right? And so um, that hike back. I, I just almost always, if you've ever done this, you know that when you're hiking back, you just kind of zone out and all you think of is food and warmth, right? Just home, that warm bed. And so I, I, I remember one time in particular, uh, I, I'd been hunting what's called flooded timber, right? And so it's really, it's kind of swamp lowland. Um, and I was walking down what I thought was the right path, and I thought I was headed home, and I'm imagining all of the wonderful attributes of getting home and eating and all of the, like, one-day moment, you know, like, this is, I'm going to get there soon. And as I was walking, it was taking a really long time. And I, I remember that, like, feeling starting to creep in, like, I've been walking for a while. I should have come to that field by now, Right? That little thing, that sinking feeling. So, so you start walking a little faster. And then another thought, that's a weird-shaped tree. I've never seen that tree before. Keep walking a little faster. Faster and faster and faster. Deeper and deeper into the darkness as the light fades, right? Until it hit me, I've been going the wrong way, and I have no idea where I am. 
and the sun's going down. That's a sinking feeling. I thought I was headed home, but I had been trudging deeper into the swamp. If you know anything about a swamp, the paths are hard to figure out. So, again, also, another story for you. I was five years old, all right? I was five, my parents took me and my sister uh, to Disney World. We went to Epcot, and it was the 80s, and it was awesome. I remember, five years old, clear as a bell, man. I, we spent the entire day there, and we were headed back home, and I remember I'm holding uh, my mom and my dad's hands as we walked toward the parking lot. I mean, it was like one of those, like, we had been there the whole day. It was fantastic. We're headed home. Um, my mom let go of my hand because she was holding my sister's hand in, like, a sombrero or something like that, right? It's, you know, it's Epcot. You got stuff. And so my dad let go of my hand because, well, he thought my mom was holding my hand, right? And so I'm five years old, trying to kind of keep up with my parents. And about the same time, the light show over Epcot Lake ended, and the entire population of the theme park suddenly washed over us, flowing toward the parking lot gates. And so I'm suddenly engulfed in the sea of strangers that are just sort of washing me into the abyss of the Disney parking lot, and I can still remember just legs, just a sea of legs everywhere. So, you know, I'm like five years old. So this is like what it's burned into my head. And I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where my family was. So I did what every red-blooded American boy would do. I cried my eyes out. Right? And so then suddenly, and I remember him. I can see him coming at me. This balding man with a white-collared shirt, comes in and just picks me up. <laughs> and, he, and he takes me to the lost and found desk under the Epcot golf ball. You know that thing? There's like a lost... They literally, they put me in there with like the misplaced camcorders and umbrellas because apparently Disneyland in the 80s just put lost kids and misplaced electronics in the same category, right? So... Anyway, so I'm in there after a few hours, and I mean hours, my parents finally show up, and I still remember my mom walking in stressed out wearing this big orange sombrero carrying a giant Mickey Mouse cover, like in a, in a Santa Claus outfit. That was, this is the image burned into my head as they enter, and the lady at the desk is like, is this your family? And I'm like, are there other options? Like, can we, can we wait a little longer or see who shows up? Um, I'm just kidding. I, I love my parents. Um, <laughs> they, they're going to love this one. Uh, but also, let this be a lesson to you. Like, traumatize your kids at five, and they'll preach about it when they're 40, right? Like, here we go. So, but the point in both of these scenarios is that I was lost, like completely lost and incapable of rescuing myself. Completely incapable. Like the only way I got out of the woods that night was that there just happened to be a full moon, which gave me just enough light to get back to the path that then led me home. And without that man scooping me up at Disney, I would have wandered into that massive, pop, massive parking lot and probably become one of those 1980s milk carton statistics. Right? I mean, think about that. And so Jesus isn't telling us that we've got to get smarter or stronger or more capable to choose the right gate and get ourselves out of the mess that we found ourselves in. That's not what he's saying. Like this isn't Indiana Jones or the Goonies trying to rely on their own wit or archaeological expertise to avoid those booby traps and choose the right path. That's not what this is. The reality is that left unto ourselves, we are lost, helpless, and hopeless. 
Like the tide is rising and the darkness is setting in, but there is a man who has come to help. Light has come even in the dark. Jesus isn't saying study hard and go figure out which gate's the right one. He's saying humanity's lost, hopeless, and dead in sin, and dead is dead. And so he's saying you're far from the path of life, but even though you've strayed into death and darkness, light and life and resurrection has come to you in Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am the gate. I am the way. I am the path. I am the resurrection, and I'm standing right in front of you. But isn't that narrow-minded? I mean, you have all heard this before. And, and I think without the reminders of what is true and why, we can kind of get caught up into the world's worldview or paradigms that say that that is a narrow-minded. Like to say that Jesus is the only way is really, isn't that arrogant? I hear this all the time. But people assume that because I'm an American or even because I grew up in the Bible Belt that I'm just leaning into the religion of my parents. And it actually, I'll tell you what, that's one of the things that really frustrates me. Because it makes it seem like, oh, I'm just ignorant and you just haven't journeyed and seen and experienced all the other. Because how can you really decide which religion is right until you've experienced or tried or understood all of them? All the time, people are constantly telling me, well, you know, I'm not going to choose Christianity until I've thoroughly, like, evaluated everything from Confucianism and Buddhism to Islam, Judaism, Confucianism, and the spaghetti monster in the sky. That's, that's a hurdle for a lot of people because they think that they're, it's up to them to figure out how to get out of the mess that they're in. Like they think that I'm just trying to convert people into my Western worldview, like my tribe is the right tribe and everybody else is wrong. And I'm going to tell you something, guys, that is arrogant. It is. As a lot of people perceive Christianity this way because a lot of people operate this way. They see it as one perspective in the midst of many. And you need to open your mind and broaden your horizons. I'm going to tell you something, guys. I actually have had the opportunity to travel the world, not so I could figure out which one is right, but because I had come to realize and be met by the truth. And so the truth is, I wasn't born on the gospel path. I wasn't. In fact, I grew up in the same performance-oriented religion that my former Hindu friend in India and my former Muslim friend in Indonesia grew up on. The same path that I grew up on that works righteousness, be good enough, behave, act right, and then you'll get into heaven if your good works outweigh your bad works. That is the same path I grew up on in America that they grew up on on the other side of the world. Because there's only two paths, Jesus and everything else. It characterizes every false religion in the world, including false Christianity that is about religion and not actual relationship and knowing him and what he's done for you. 
And see, every path but the path of Jesus is a path of self-righteousness. It's all about trying to be good enough in yourself. Hinduism, earn your salvation through karma. Buddhism, attain salvation through enlightenment. Atheism even says that there is no God, which means you are God and a law unto yourself. You set the standards because you are the standard and new age spirituality essentially does the exact same thing. Because just because your way of life has the Christian label on it, doesn't mean you're actually a Christian. And and, and if you're living your life trying to be good enough to get into heaven, that's the same path and category for every false religion in the world. That's the broad gate. The narrow gate is the gate that takes you through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you couldn't break that gate down. He had to. The narrow gate is faith alone by grace alone in Christ alone. Like this is or grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See, the truth is, is I, I didn't find the only way to heaven through Jesus Christ. Heaven found the only way to me through Jesus Christ. Let me say that one again, because some of y'all need to get that in you. I didn't find the only way to heaven through Jesus Christ. Heaven found the only way to me through Jesus Christ. You see, one is extremely arrogant and entitled. The other is extremely humble and grateful. And so what makes it difficult isn't the attempt to live up to God's expectations. The most difficult thing about following Jesus is dying to your desires to do things your own way and in your own strength. (laughs) That's what makes this path difficult. The difficulty isn't releasing the counterfeit saviors that appeal to your own ego. Remember the context of this sermon. Jesus isn't talking to a secular, godless society. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to a society ruled by the Pharisees who are impressed by their own religious rules and rituals. That was the path that they were on. And that path was an extremely, is still extremely crowded. He's speaking to people who thought that they either had it all figured out in their own strength or they could figure it out. And in their minds, the difficulty was trying to figure out how to be good enough. They view the world in two categories. Those who have their stuff together and those that don't. That's the broad path. It's the path that's motivated by pride and shame. Jesus says... Those aren't the two categories. The two categories are those who know and hope in Jesus and those who don't. Everything else is a path headed for the swamp. So so can we know which path we're on? Like how do we know if we're on the path with Jesus and headed home or if we're on the path headed to the swamp of destruction? And, And what about those around us? On to the next illustration. The fruit. Matthew 7, verse 15. It says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Say ravenous. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So this past week, uh, our leaders did an exercise that walked through Matthew chapter 23 and identified the seven woes or warnings that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day the people who were leading the crowds that Jesus was speaking to. And so he called these Pharisees out for essentially having, you know, one of the woes, essentially, is that they were having, they had rules for thee, but not for me, right? He called them out uh, for being hypocrites and blind guides who kept people from recognizing their need for salvation and ultimately their need for Jesus. He called them out for having scrupulous rules in one area to look impressive to people while neglecting the more important things like mercy and justice and faithfulness. He said, you strain out a gnat while swallowing a camel, which is a pretty intense visual. You strain out a gnat while swallowing a camel. Like you've memorized half your Bible, but your heart is cold toward God and God's people. Jesus compared them to whitewashed tombs. He said, you look righteous on the outside, but inwardly, you're spiritually dead and rotting. This is the context that Jesus is speaking into. Like think about it. If you're empty on the inside, then you'll look to feed on others around you to feed your belly. Like ravenous wolves trying to fill the void. When you live for praise or worldly success and approval from people or achievements, it's all really just an attempt to fill the emptiness that we have on the inside. And every single one of us outside of Christ is deeply empty. And so the truth is, is that that emptiness can only be filled with the love and approval and security that comes from knowing God and receiving your identity in Him. Your spouse can't do that for you. Having children can't do that for you. Getting that job that you thought you would always get can't do that for you. Only Jesus can. And if you put those things on your spouse or your job or your kids or that one day hope of getting to that place, You're headed for the swamp and a major letdown. Because it can only come from knowing him and receiving what he declares about you and what he's done for you through the cross and resurrection. Not because of what you've done or have not done or can do, but simply because he declares this one is mine. Receiving that is everything. That's the root that produces true fruit. It's the root that tapped into the Holy Spirit, not your own flesh and ego. And so is Jesus calling us to go on a hypocrite hunt? <laughs> like, is that what, like, think about this. Is, is he sitting here telling us, like, we should go on this, like, hypocrite witch hunt to try and, like, figure out who, who, are you a false prophet? Like, is that what he's saying? Is, is he saying we should be anxious and suspicious of everyone and everything and live in fear all the time? Like, is the Christian disposition to be constantly trying to figure out something wrong with everyone? No, not at all. Guys, listen to me. That's actually the disposition of the Pharisee and the scribe. 
That's the root of the flesh that leads to division and isolation, more insecurity and pain. That's fear, not faith. That's how a ravenous wolf trying to fill his empty insides operates. Like a call here is for discernment, not judgment and condemnation. And he just preached on that, right? And so Jesus does clearly, though, issue a call to be discerning here by saying, look at the fruit. He says, that's how you'll know them. And that's interesting, right? Because Jesus makes it clear that false prophets will actually be fruitful. Let me say that again. Jesus makes it clear that false prophets will be fruitful. But the fruit will be diseased. It'll be poisonous. It'll be a reflection of what's deep down under the surface, symptomatic of the kind of root that they are actually abiding in. Like if you're abiding in the Holy Spirit, your fruit's going to reflect it. But if you're abiding in your own carnal flesh and ego, then your fruit will reflect it. There's a healthy fruit that leads to life, and there's a diseased fruit that leads to destruction. Jesus says, be discerning of this. So, so what does it look like? Are, are we talking about the fruit of hard work? Because it's often how people apply this. Like, like the fruit of being hard work, really obedient, dutiful, disciplined, successful, impressive, law keepers who seem to have it all together. Is that the fruit he's talking about? Maybe, maybe people who have large followings. Maybe it's the fruit of mighty and impressive deeds, miracles even. Maybe signs and wonders. Is that, is that the fruit? That's fruit, right? Like that's what he's talking about, right? Now hear me, being disciplined, successful, and impressive isn't disqualifying, okay? Those are good things. Like having a following, praise God. These are good, godly things. They're not bad, but that's not the fruit Jesus is talking about here. Because all of that fruit can be the result of godless and a diseased root also. Remember, the Pharisees and scribes often checked every one of those boxes, which is why they weren't poor in spirit. Like They felt like they had it all together. They had no need or even desire for a Savior. They had chosen their own self-reliant gait and were taking the crowds down the wrong path. They were feeding them poisonous fruit of self-righteous legalism. They're dancing up and down the pride-shame spectrum all along the way and feeding others with it, just like the world. And they feasted upon the fruit of Satan, which says, you don't really need God. You can do it all in your own strength. You too can be impressive even like God. Isn't that how Satan tempted Eve in the garden? Which leads to our next illustration here. The verdict. Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, which emphatic, when it's repeated, it's an emphatic statement. Like they truly are considering Jesus Lord, which is, makes this even more sobering. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Like, catch this. They're giving 
Jesus a resume. Even on Judgment Day. That's the context here. They're appealing to their own loyalty and their own dutiful tasks. They're appealing to their works and their deeds and their performance. This is what many called doo-doo religion. Get it? Like they're appealing to that which brought them praise in the eyes of people for all that they had done and all that they do. But that resume of works is like the diseased clothes of a leper to God, just rotten fruit from people whose hearts were far from him and really just gloried in themselves and used his name for that glory. And so in verse 23, Jesus says, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these were people chasing impressiveness, success, and discipline, but it was all in their own strength. They were self-righteous, self-centered, self-important, self-aggrandizing, and they'd even used the name of the Lord to bolster their vanity in the eyes of themselves and all around them. And so when you live on that pride-shame spectrum, then then you'll be self-aggrandizing one moment and then self-loathing the next. And then in order to get out of your own self-loathing, you pump yourself up. And then by pumping yourself up, you often step on others. This is the pride-shame spectrum. And, and, And you're motivated then of a pride of by a pride of achievement or the fear of failure. On the outside, it might look like a beautiful tomb, but on the inside, it's all just dead because it's simply the work of your own flesh and it's rotting away. And that fruit will never satisfy. It's why that girl is never pretty enough. It's why that job will never pay enough, that friend will never be supportive enough, that spouse, house, or that high will never be enough. Because only Jesus, only Jesus satisfies. So if you want to know what the root is that you're abiding in, take a look at the fruit produced when this life lets you down. Or when it lifts you up. Like, where do you turn when you succeed? And where do you turn when you fail? Like, what comes out of you when you're squeezed and what comes out of you when you celebrate, right? The same person that throws the drinking party when they're down is the same person that's going to throw the drinking party when they're up. I'm not knocking drinking all the time. That's a whole other sin. The spiritually insecure and unsatisfied will look to counterfeit success in order to feed their hunger. That's the point. They'll pick a fight even. They'll pick a fight, they'll pick a drug or a sexual conquest even to feel wanted or needed or alive. If that's what happens when you fail, what do you turn to? Things that feed your flesh. That's what the carnal body tempts us to do. That's what the carnal life and mindset does. That's what the ego does. And that's what the carnal man feeds on in order to feel alive. But it's the path that leads to destruction because it's all counterfeit. And in Galatians 5, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. Sound familiar? (laughs) And so describing, he says, the works of the flesh, he calls it this. In verse 19, he describes the works of the flesh this way, saying, 
Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Some of you are like, we don't have sorcery anymore, do we? Ah. Like Jim Carrey and Arnold Schwarzenegger are, are leading the charge on the universe manifesting to them what they want. Guys, that's, that, that'd be sorcery, right? So the common denominator for all of these is that they are a counterfeit attempt to extort God and people to fill the spiritual emptiness inside like a ravenous wolf. In fact, the word used for ravenous in verse 15 can also have the connotation in the Greek for extortion. Again, it's self-serving at the expense of others. This is what life on the pride-shame spectrum is like, and yet it's exactly what Jesus came to set us free from. Like Jesus isn't saying, suck it up and try harder. He's saying, you can't get off this path. He's saying, you've already entered the broad gate with the rest of the world. It's the pride-shame path of works righteousness. The entire world stands on this path, and they stand condemned. And the only way off is through the narrow gate that Jesus provides through the cross and the resurrection. This is the gospel. God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die. He conquered death in the grave. He opened that narrow gate. He split the veil and he paved the way through the resurrection to eternal life with God the Father. And it's an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die. It starts the moment we place our faith and our hope in what he did for us at the cross and through the resurrection. And when that takes place, when we place our faith and our hope in him, we're filled with his spirit. And he begins to change us from the inside out. He justifies us by his grace through faith in Christ alone. And he begins to align our hearts with him, but that doesn't mean we don't still struggle with our fleshly desires. That's the process. That's the path. And we walk it with Jesus. And so when the roots of your life dig into the very spirit of God, this is the Christian walk. It's digging into his spirit, leaning into him, walking by faith, living in the spirit. The fruit of your life then becomes something entirely different altogether. Galatians 5.22 he, he describes the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the work of the flesh. He describes the fruit of the Spirit like this. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. In other words, God's law exposes just how far we've fallen, right? But for those who live by the Spirit, for those whose hope is in Christ and not themselves, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's what he's saying. So, so follow me, because I, I think this concept of the fruit of the Spirit gets really confused sometimes. Like people tend to think that growing in Christ is, is like they're, they're trying to just pop out one fruit at a time. Like I got a little patience over here. Eh, lost my self-control. Like I'm kind, you know, but I'm complete a slob, right? Like that's, that's, that's not what 
he's talking about. Like they envision themselves trying really hard to produce these separate fruits of the Spirit, and they'll say, I really need to work on my patience, or I need to do a better job of self-control. But in order for a tree to produce fruit, think about this. The focus is actually not on the fruit. Like if you're focused on the fruit, you're focused on the wrong thing. Like if you ever, has a tree ever been like, oh, I gotta get that apple out? No. You know what a tree's focused on? The root. Going deeper. And or stretching high for the light. Like that's what a tree's focused on. It's not about what it produces. The focus of the tree is about where its nourishment is coming from. Because if the root is healthy, the fruit will be healthy. If you're rooted in the Spirit of God, meaning interacting with Him, spending time with Him, then your fruit will reflect it. If you want more patience and all you can do is focus on how impatient you are, then you're not going to produce more patience. You're going to produce more impatience. You're just going to be frustrated and ashamed of yourself. And if you are patient, then you're going to be proud of yourself. There goes the humility. (laughs) Right? Like, when you behold Jesus, though, like when you behold how patient he is toward you, talk to him about it. Thank him for it. Worship him for his patience. Interact with him, even, even if it's just five, ten seconds at a time. Like as soon as it pops into your mind, you're driving down the road. Thank him for it. Abide in him. This moves your heart toward him, and you'll experience him in this relationship, and it'll cultivate that fruit in your life. Like when you drink in his goodness and grace and mercy and kindness, when you behold him and abide in him, when you worship him, this is how you build yourself up in him. Like when you let your roots run deep in his word and spirit, no matter what your circumstance is, you'll be rooted in him like a foundation. Like acknowledge him in all your ways. Don't neglect his spirit throughout the day. Interact with him and incline your heart to him. Yeah, have a quiet time but let it influence the rest of your time, right? Like do this over and over over the course of months and years and you're going to be amazed at the intimacy and joy that you'll cultivate with the God of the universe that you become more and more hyper aware of. Like pray to him, worship him, stick close to him, take joy in him. Surround yourself with people on that path who will point you to him and worship him with them. Like, and, and when you lose sight of him, repent. It's actually easy and really difficult. Like, repent, turn back to him. Like, don't wait. Like, don't try to prove that you're strong enough or worthy after you've fallen in or, before you repent. Just do it. Like, it's not about you. Behold him and be held by him in the spirit. Let your roots run deep. Choose life. Say, choose life. Some of you think that you've got to live a full week without sinning that sin that you sinned in order to be accepted by him. That's called works righteousness. He, even though you might have just rejected the path and thrown up a couple of fingers at him and run over here, you know what he does? He goes after you. He's right behind you. Repentance isn't like I've repented, now I've got to take a journey back and show them that I mean it. It's like you, the moment you turn, which is what metanoia means, to return and turn and look back to him, he is there and his arms are open. 
This is who Jesus is, to choose life. Matthew 3, verse 8, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus by telling the religious people of the time to, quote, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Again, to repent means to refix your gaze, to change your mind and your perspective. The fruit is the result of what or who you behold. This is not about all that do-do religion. What you behold, when you behold Jesus, you vanquish the flesh with that done and done reality of what's already been accomplished for you in Christ. This is the firm foundation upon which we stand. This is what we're rooted in, which again is our final illustration, the rock. Look at Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. So again, what does it look like to do these words? Paul actually sums it up pretty well in Galatians 5, verse 16. This is what Paul says to the church in Galatia. He says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, follow this, because there's this battle between our own ego and trusting in God's grace uh, in, in the Spirit. Because this battle, the, the ego, it doesn't want you to lean into the things of the Spirit. You've got this battle in you, and it doesn't end the moment you become a Christian, Okay? Like that's actually often the first time you even notice it in the first place because you actually want to follow Jesus, but then you find that narrow path difficult or even impossible because of your flesh. And then you go, well, I must not be a Christian or this is too hard. And, I, you know, what's even the point? A lot of people check out of Christianity because of that. And that's because they're still bound up in their own works righteousness. You see, before... You become a Christian often, it's like that sin issue, that conviction didn't matter. Like you were just rolling down that broad path that I care in the world and headed straight for the swamp, but you didn't care because you didn't have any conviction. That's why a lot of people will come to Christ and they'll be like, well, it was much easier when I was just crazy. <laughs> the truth is, is they've missed the point of what they've been saved from altogether. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, your sin actually bothers you. <laughs> they can, if your sin doesn't bother you, that should bother you, right? But when you're filled with the Spirit, your own sin actually bothers you. Suddenly you realize you're prone to do things you actually don't even want to do, which is pretty strange. Like the Apostle Paul put it like this in Romans 7. Many of us just read about this in Essential Christianity. He says in Romans 7, verse 14 through 15, it says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Verse 18, 
He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Guys, this is the Apostle Paul who's speaking here. This man wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and planted churches all over the known world at the time. And he's making a clear distinction here between his struggle with the flesh and what he truly desires and identifies in, which is Christ. He doesn't identify with his sin. He identifies with his Savior. He says, I don't want that. I struggle with it. And I, I do what I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I do want to do. And he goes, who will save me from this wretched body of sin and death? This is where he is at in Romans 7. Look, he's not a perfect man. But he is a man who's received the perfect grace and the perfect love of the Lord in Jesus Christ through faith. And it's what drives him forward in a constant state of repentance and looking to Jesus and dying to the sins that he struggles with and dying to the flesh. This is the Christian walk. And in his book, Essential Christianity, again, Greer said it was like going from a battle you can't win to a battle you can't lose. He put it like this. I'm just going to read it because it's awesome. He says, because the gospel is primarily an announcement of the victory that Jesus had won for his people, not a summons to fight a battle for him, the battle changed from one Paul couldn't win to one he couldn't lose. Christ had won the victory, and by faith, Christ's victory was now Paul's. In Christ, Paul was a new creation. And he goes on to say, Paul knows that in Christ he has ultimate victory. Jesus had declared it is finished over Paul's salvation. Paying the full price for his sin on the cross and overcoming all its powers in the resurrection. And so understanding that reality changed Paul's disposition in the fight. He says, I know my sinful cravings are not the true me anymore. It's the old me, the dead me, not the renewed me in Christ. And then J.D. goes on to compare it to when America joined, the great, uh, joined Great Britain in World War II after Japan attacked at Pearl Harbor. And he quotes Winston Churchill, who said, No American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing, uh, that hearing the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. Because he was the prime minister of Great Britain. History lesson. Hello. And so he says, England would live Britain would live. The rest of the war would simply be about the proper allocating of overwhelming force. I went to bed that night and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. And J.D. then wrote, the finished work of the cross, the resurrection, I'm sorry, the finished work of Christ, the resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit are the overwhelming forces promised to us in salvation. So, although Paul laments, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death, he can immediately rejoice in the answer, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I would add the next, the very next verse in, in Romans, from Romans 7 is, Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the rock. 
And so standing on the rock of our salvation, rooted in his accomplishment, not your own, rooted and established upon who he says you are, not the world around you or even your own opinion or feelings about yourself, not identified by what you have or have not done, but rooted in the firm foundation of what he has done for you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what we discipline ourselves to behold. I'm going to say that one again. That, this truth, this reality is what we discipline ourselves to behold. Like this is why we posture ourselves in prayer and before his word. And that requires a discipline because you're in a fight with your own flesh. And so when we forget or lose sight, we then repent and behold. Like hear me, this is not a call to easy believism as some have called it, right? It's not a call to undisciplined faith, not at all. Like remember, Paul and Jesus are warning us here. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Christian, you can very well gratify the desires of your flesh and in so doing, you will grieve the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you're losing your salvation, but if you love him, you don't really want to grieve him. And so in other words, hey, Legitimate Christian, there's a battle going on in you. I know because it's going on in me too. The shifting sands of this world will suck you into that pride and shame spectrum. It'll set your eyes on you and take your eyes off of Jesus. Repentance doesn't mean suck it up and do better. Repentance means behold Jesus Christ. It's not a call to passivity. It's a call to active faith, posturing before his grace and glory. It's a call to send your roots deep into the spirit of truth and grace every day because what you feed will grow. Amen? If you feed your flesh, it's going to grow. If you feed the spirit in your life, it's going to grow and you'll mature in the spirit. So we get off the sifting sands. We get off that pride and shame. We let him establish you upon the rock of this gospel of grace. And when that becomes your firm foundation, the evidence and the fruit will follow. Like so many people, so many people think the fruit is what saves. Good works and mighty deeds, but that's not the fruit that saves. It's the root that saves. It's the relationship. It's the reliance. It's knowing and being known. But if your fruit is rotten or non-existent, the warning is clear. Repent, return, behold, and be held. Abide in Christ. Choose life. And I would even say, choose the one who's chosen you and live. Let's pray.